Good morning. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Thank you for joining us as we study through God's Word. Well, I have a little bit more voice than I had last Sunday for sure. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're in the midst of Jesus' public ministry. He's in Jerusalem. It's just before his crucifixion, and he's battling back and forth with these religious authorities. These same authorities who should have been watching for him with expectancy, but instead of embracing him as the Messiah, they kept Jesus at a distance. They were constantly critical of him. They were antagonistic towards him, And they were always looking for ways to try and stump him or trap him. But it always blew up in their face and they ended up looking foolish. Well, we're going to see some more examples of their futile attempts beginning here at verse 18. It says, Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies... And leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Now, you need to understand that the Sadducees were a class of sort of educated, sophisticated, influential, and wealthy men. They were kind of like the Harvard graduates of the day. They held positions of influence and prestige and power, but they didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. They didn't believe in immortality. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in spirits and angels. So although they believe in God, they don't believe in the immortality of the soul, Which makes this elaborate question to Jesus all the more ridiculous. Now it's important for us to understand how they frame this particular question. Well back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Israel established a practice known as leveret marriage. And the word leveret comes from the Latin word which means brother-in-law. And this whole idea of leveret marriage is pretty simple. If a man marries a woman and he dies before they have children, it becomes the responsibility then of one of his brothers to marry the widow. And it also becomes his responsibility to have children with her so as to continue the name and the line of the deceased brother to keep his inheritance within Israel so it doesn't die off. So you can see then that this is an outrageous, ridiculous, and hypothetical question. 
it's almost like the question, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? <laughs> I mean, it was designed to elicit the specific response of, I don't know. Well, Jesus isn't going to say, I don't know. He's actually going to respond to the question. In verse 24, he says, Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. See, the Sadducees were making a critical mistake here. They assumed that life in the world to come was just like the life we're living now, only improved. But friends, the world to come is going to be completely different to this life. Heaven's life will be lived under a completely different order altogether, under completely different principles in a completely different dimension that we can never imagine. <clears throat> and many people today make that same mistake that the Sadducees made regarding heaven. And they think that heaven is just a more glorious version of earth. And notice how Jesus corrects that thinking in verse 20, 24. He says, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And this explains the reason why they were wrong about the resurrection. Their wrong thinking came from ignorance. And Jesus says, you guys just don't know. And then Jesus points out two things that they were ignorant about here. First, they were ignorant about the Scriptures. And second of all, they were ignorant about the power of God. And friends, if we fail in any one of those two areas, we will fail significantly. When you don't know the Scriptures, then you don't have that anchor for truth and for belief. Oh, how we need to get back to simply asking the question, what does the Bible say about it? What does the Bible say about this problem, about this difficulty that we're going through? Just go back to what the Bible says. But on the other hand, there are some people who really know the Scriptures, but they don't know the power of God. And when we doubt God's power, then we doubt his ability to be able to do what he's promised to do in the scriptures. And so these Sadducees who posed as men of vast intelligence and superior understanding, who looked down at the you know, Pharisees as fundamental Bible thumpers, well, Jesus looks them square in the eyes and says, you're ignorant. You don't know the Bible. You know, it's interesting to me how many people who regard themselves or are regarded by others as intelligent, or intelligent in terms of the world's knowledge become increasingly dull in their understanding when it comes to Jesus. They can be brilliant about minute details in molecular and, 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 and microbiology. 
They can understand the intricacies of engineering or the deep secrets of computer programming and all this technology. And don't get me wrong, those are very important things to know. But if you don't know the important things about the Scriptures, about the power of God, Jesus would say to you as well, you're ignorant. You just don't know. Mark 8.36 tells us, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses what? His own soul. I got all this knowledge, but I went to hell anyway. Didn't gain me anything. So Jesus is now trying to instruct the Sadducees about what life in heaven is like. At least as it pertains to their question in verse 25, where he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And really what Jesus is saying here is that you can't take your present earthly relationships and just assume that they're going to be exactly the same in heaven as they are in earth. Our human relationships are largely a matter of time and place. Let me explain. When I was young, many years ago, <laughs> I defined myself as the son of my parents. But after I was married... I define myself more as the husband of my wife. And after the kids were born, I defined myself more than as the father of my children. And at some point, soon, <laughs> I may think of myself more as a grandfather. Now, just because I take on these roles or definitions on earth does not mean that that's how I'm going to be defined when I get to heaven. Am I going to be a son? Am I going to be a husband? Am I going to be a father or a grandfather? No. Friends, all those things are relevant to the time and place we are in now. But in heaven, we will be defined by our relationship to God. More than by our relationship with any other person. You understand what I'm saying here? <clears throat> in fact, Jesus goes on at the end of verse 25 and he says, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Let me ask you, why did God make Eve for Adam? Because it was not good for man to be alone. In heaven, there will not be that same need for marriage. We're certainly not alone. 
And what was the first thing that God said to Adam and Eve after their marriage? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Have kids. Well, in heaven, there's no need for babies. No one ever dies. (laughs) Jesus said, we're going to be like the angels. And from everything I know about the scriptures, angels don't have babies. (laughs) That is a man-made thing, and I'm not going down that rabbit trail. (laughs) Look... (laughs) Let's be honest, okay? We don't have all the answers of what it's going to be like in heaven. But we absolutely do know that it will not be the same as here on earth. There are mysteries and there are surprises that remain for us in the resurrection. And I'm looking forward to those. So Jesus has answered their question here by showing their ignorance of the Scriptures. Now he's going to prove them wrong in their understanding of the resurrection itself. Verse 26. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Therefore, or you are therefore greatly mistaken. So Jesus here assures these skeptical Sadducees that there is a resurrection from the dead. And yes, they do rise. And that is demonstrated in the Scriptures. He's saying like, hey guys, haven't you read your Bibles? It's like right there in Exodus 3. How it talks about what God said to Moses in the burning bush. And what is so interesting about these Sadducees is that they only believe that the first five books of the Bible were truly inspired. The rest of it was "Mm, meh. Only the books that Moses wrote. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says to them, okay, that's what you believe? Fine. I'll meet you on that ground. And so he proves the resurrection from the dead from what Moses said. Now you may be thinking to yourself, how does that actually prove the resurrection? Well, when you realize that God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush, Some 400 years have passed since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever walked the earth. But notice God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which proves that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living And it proves that they're still living in heaven in glory with God. And what Jesus is affirming here is God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And by doing that, he proves the resurrection from the dead. And in so doing, he exposes the great theological mistake of these Sadducees. And friends, this really startled the people that Jesus gave such an incredible answer 
to this far-fetched, involved (laughs) question. And you can see that from their response in verse 28. It says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked them, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, with all the trapping going on in this passage, you, could, you, know, you couldn't be blamed for thinking that this was not just another attempt at the very same thing. You think that command is the greatest, Jesus? Well, what about this one? <laughs> and no matter which one Jesus chose, they would pounce. And that could possibly be the case here. However, I'm not sure that this is what is happening in this case. Verse 28 tells us that a member of the scribes who had been listening in and perceiving that Jesus had answered well asked him which commandment is the greatest. So it seems more of a sincere question. He sees and knows the hostility in the questioning of Jesus. He sees that Jesus' response is very knowledgeable and insightful. It's like, man, this guy really knows his stuff. You know, have you ever been around someone who just had such a wealth of knowledge? They've had a lifetime of experience and just had a level of wisdom so much beyond yours. And you just really want to hear what they have to say on a topic. Well, friends, this is what's going on here. This man was obviously considered an expert in the law and the scriptures. Yet Jesus is displaying such an incredible practical knowledge and understanding. And it's like this man really wants to know Jesus' perspective on this. At least that's how I perceive this particular question. But look at Jesus' response in verse 30. He says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You know, friends, our world has done a great job of twisting the meaning of love. And when we speak of love, we almost always connect it now with feeling. Now, I surely hope that you have warm feelings towards God here this morning. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I want you to notice that Jesus is talking about a love that can be commanded. Friends, you can't command somebody to have warm feelings towards you. 
And throughout the ages, many husbands and wives have tried to no avail to do this. No, this is a different kind of love that's based on a decision. A decision to love, a decision to care, a decision to nurture and act kindly, a decision to act honorably towards another person. And my friends, that is the kind of love that you can command. And verse 30 gives us the parameters of what our love should look like. We should love with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our minds and all of our strength. And that really covers the gamut, right? Love God with everything you have. And frankly, this should be a dramatic wake-up call for us. It should remind us of what is really important in the law of God, that love. And the way we demonstrate our love to him is through our obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Before Adam and Eve were ever commanded to not eat of the fruit of the tree, They were commanded to love the Lord, their God, who created them. Jesus said, it's the first commandment. So if it's the first commandment, then the first commandment Adam and Eve would have been given was to love God. And when they disobeyed God with that tree, God's heart wasn't broken because they had disobeyed that commandment. It was a, his heart was broken because that trust, they didn't trust him. And that trust is built on loving God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. And it's the first commandment in regard to its priority. Every other act of obedience that we can do before God is empty. If we don't love him first, then that's what he really wants from us. Well, the scribe heard Jesus say this. He got excited. Look at verse 32. So the scribe said to him, Well, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And you can just picture Jesus at that moment, and you can just see the smile emblazon his face at that moment. By George, I think he's got it. Brilliant. This guy is really getting it. Because he says, love is far more important than a thousand empty sacrifices. 
Verse 34, now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. And with that, the game of stump the Messiah was over. Well, now Jesus has some questions for them. Verse 35, then Jesus answered and said, well, he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now, it was a well-known fact that the Messiah or the Christ would be a descendant of that great King David according to the Old Testament. So he will be a son of David and they meant that in the broad sense meaning an ancestor. And so here Jesus comes along and says, so you think you know all about the Messiah, do you? You think you've got everything figured out and you think that the Christ will be the son of of David. And they of course they all go, well of course he is. He says the scriptures say that. But then Jesus adds this little twist in verses 36 and 37. He says, and I paraphrase, okay? Okay, if he's the son of David, why does David himself call him Lord? Because if he calls him Lord, how can he be his son? I mean, like how many people call their sons Lord? I certainly don't. <laughs> I appreciate them, but I don't call them Lord. <clears throat> and I can just picture the faces of these scribes and Pharisees because Jesus just threw a monkey wrench into the machinery of their minds. And what he was showing them was that they really didn't know what they thought they did. You know, one of the most dangerous places for us to be is in that place where we think we know it all. <laughs> oh, we see it readily in other people, don't we? Like the scribes here. Man, it was obvious. But we're often blind to see it in ourselves, right? Jesus was saying to these scribes, Put away these preconceptions. Go back to the Bible. And let the Bible tell you who the Messiah really is. Well, after having exposed the scribes, the common people, they're getting excited. And Jesus continues in verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, Love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Let's remember that these scribes were the Bible scholars of Jesus' day. They were entrusted with preserving, learning, and teaching God's world, word to the world. They were men that the people of God 
should have been able to trust. But instead, Jesus says, no, beware of the scribes. That's heavy, isn't it? How would you like that to be said of you? And this description Jesus gives is a lesson in contrast about servanthood. Jesus said the true disciples should be as a servant. The scribes, they wanted to be the masters. Jesus said a true disciple has the simplicity of a little child, no pretension whatsoever. The scribes, they wanted to be admired and praised. Jesus said a true disciple would take up his cross and follow him. The scribes, they wanted comfort and adulation, not pain and suffering. And we could do a long study contrasting the lack of servanthood found here. Suffice to say that true servanthood draws attention to the master, not to the servant. And through all of their pomp and circumstances, these scribes engineered their own exaltation. They demanded their own recognition. They choreographed their spirituality. And they manipulated people for their own gain and glory. Even at the expense of walking all over the truly needy people that they were called to help and serve. <clears throat> and Jesus makes it clear in no uncertain terms their condemnation will be great. Well, let's end on a positive note this morning. This is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Verse 41, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they have put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Her whole livelihood. You know, I can just imagine that by the end of verse 40, Jesus was pretty worn out. Debating ignorant people can do that to you. But in the movie running through my mind right now, I picture him going out for a walk, finding a bench to sit on, sitting down and watching people walk by. And verse 41 says that he sat down across from the treasury. Now, we know from ancient history that in the treasury, when you would walk in to give your offering, there were 13 metal trumpets. And they would stick up and you would throw your offering into this trumpet and it would funnel down into these treasury boxes. 
And so people would walk by and they would put in their contribution. But I want you to notice something in verse 41. It says, Jesus saw how the people put money into the treasury. And I don't think he was talking about their technique. (laughs) Jesus was looking at the motive, the motivation for giving. Jesus was looking at the heart. He wanted to know where their heart was as they gave. Now imagine these wealthy scribes who love to bring attention to themselves. And they would walk in and they would make a loud, obnoxious prayer of thanksgiving. And they would systematically drop in significant amounts of coins. And you can imagine the clanging and the noise that that would cause as they went down through these trumpets. And all the people would hear the sound and they'd be going, wow, what a large offering this person is giving. Now I want you to contrast that with the widow. She comes in and offers two mites. Virtually nothing of value monetarily. And in Luke's account of the story, we glean a few more details about this woman. Those two measly coins were all she had in the world. So she gave all that she had. I know, imagine that was you today. You know, we're pinched a little bit because of our economy right now. Things are becoming more and more expensive to live. It's harder for us to get by. Now imagine you had $2 to your name. And I'm being generous because she had less than that. You had no other cash You had no credit card. You had no checking account. You had no access to credit of any kind or anyone else to help or support you. So those $2 were literally all you had in the world. Now would any one of us have faulted her for saying, I'm going to give one and I'm going to keep one for me? None of us would. But I want you to look at how Jesus viewed this event. Verse 43. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all of these who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had her whole livelihood. For those others who gave, it was easy for them to give. It was given out of their abundance. It was not a sacrifice to them. There was no skin off their nose. And the principle that Jesus is showing here is that the value of the gift is determined by the spirit in which it is given. 
God does not want a gift that is given grudgingly. God doesn't want our guilt money. God loves a cheerful giver, or better translated, a hilarious giver. But God also looks at what the gift costs us. And do you know why? Because the first and greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. My friends, love is always connected to sacrifice. Always. Always. And on that day, the woman sacrificed more than anybody else did. So friends, as we close this morning, nobody should leave here thinking, well, you know, I want God to love me, so I guess I'll give. Or I want God to love me, so I'll obey. No, no, no. God has demonstrated his love once and for all by what he did on the cross. And now God is inviting you and I. And he says, I want you to love me. I invite you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. So shouldn't we pray this morning and ask God to build that love into our lives? Father, we just... I'm overwhelmed this morning. By the simplicity of your call on our lives. And how complex that we make it ourselves. How we muddy it, how we add to it. The relationship you want from us isn't a bunch of do's and don'ts. You want us to love you. You want us to trust you. Not because we have to, not because we're fearful, not because we want something in return, but to just genuinely love you for everything that you have done and are doing and will do in our lives. So Lord, I just pray that right now in the quiet of this quietness of this moment that you'll be speaking to hearts. Lord, that you will you're the only one that can change a hardened heart. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's an area of hardness that we have towards you, maybe an area we haven't given to you where we don't trust you with all of our heart, we hold back one. Lord, help us to give everything 
that you have already given to us, <laughs> give it back to you and let you use it for your kingdom's sake. Thank you for this passage, Lord. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to message us on our Facebook page or on Instagram. God bless.